morning. Uh, it's a blessing to be here this morning. If you're visiting with us, um, if you haven't had the opportunity uh, to meet with other people, I hope you will. I hope you'll stick around a little bit so that we might uh, greet you uh, in a way that makes you feel welcome, in a way that makes you feel welcome to, to come back again. Um, if you are, uh, live here in the area, we would certainly uh, love it if we'd be able to worship with you once again and talk with you. And We hope we, we, we make you feel welcome in that. Um, I have a question on the screen there. You, you, you can see it. Uh, it's a question I posed to the high schoolers not too long ago. What is a, a, a Christian? I think that's an important question to think about. I actually want you to take a few seconds and try and answer that question in your head. How, how, would, you, how would you answer that? Maybe even write it down. Write down the answer if you're so inclined. Um, what is a, a Christian? Um, again, I posed this question to the high schoolers. I got some pretty good responses from that. But I was asked this question by a friend of mine who is a Christian. Uh, he asked me this question, and, and I'll admit that it seemed like so basic of a question that I didn't really know how to respond to it. I, I, I didn't know the answer. It was as if he was fishing for a particular answer. And as I'm trying to wrestle with it in my head, I told him, well, a, uh, a Christian is someone who has, and then I went on to give a, a, a detailed response as to how you become a, a Christian, which I could tell was not the answer he was looking for. I felt like it was a pretty good answer, um, but it, it wasn't exactly what, what he was looking for. But maybe that's the answer that has crossed your mind. I asked this question, what is a Christian? Perhaps uh, you began thinking of, well, here is how you become a Christian. That's an important question, too, right? Uh, that, that we, you can't really get to the next question, which what is a Christian, if you don't answer that question, how do you become a Christian? Assuming it's coming from a genuine desire, that, that's an important question to ask. It's, Jesus, it's something Jesus addresses. He even passes off uh, the baton to the apostles to make disciples, to make Christians, uh, and things along those lines. Uh, I, I had this... Uh, Slide. The high schoolers should be pretty well accustomed to this slide right here. Uh, we've been looking through the, the book of Acts, but this is important. You, uh, in order to get into the book of Acts, you kind of have to go beforehand and look at, well, what did Jesus talk about of how disciples would be made? You can see the message that was preached. Uh, a person must believe that Jesus is this promised Messiah, that he is the promised Savior. He is one who has fulfilled Scripture. They must believe that he died on the cross, was buried, and was raised on the third day. Jesus says this is something that they must believe. They must repent for their sins, recognizing their need for forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins specifically coming through Jesus. Not only that, you look at the result of the response. Part of that response is the repentance and that they would be baptized in the name of Jesus. And they would have that forgiveness of sins uh, through him. And that continued work, you see that mentioned specifically in Matthew 28 and verse 20. They must believe the words of Jesus and they must believe the authorized teaching of the apostles because they are ones who are speaking the words of Jesus to other people. But does this answer the question of what is a, a Christian? Well, not, not fully. If we consider what is a, a Christian, and I'll be honest, speaking personally here, I believe uh, for years I've been so consumed with that question of how does one become a Christian that I've kind of neglected the thought of, well, what is one? Like, what, what does a Christian do? How does a Christian act? How does a Christian behave? Well, the easy question, if you were to Google this question, it's a follower of Jesus Christ. 
That's, I mean, that's a good answer. It's, it's not wrong. It's certainly accurate, but it's kind of vague. Like, practically speaking, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow anything or anyone? What, what does that actually look like? Another answer that one of the high schoolers gave, which I thought was a pretty good one, was a faithful servant of Jesus. I like that. I like that because faithful um, includes the commitment. Right? There's a, there's a certain level of commitment that a Christian has to this. It also includes the status of every Christian, which is that of a slave, that of a servant. But most importantly, it includes the object of that service, which is Jesus. That we are faithfully throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus. But what does that look like? I want to explore this question this morning. What is a, a Christian? Now, I want to do that by looking at Acts chapter 11. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles there. By looking at the church in Antioch. Perhaps you know uh, Acts 11 and verse 26 it says that they were first called Christians in Antioch. Historians believe that this was a, a derogatory term of sorts meant to insult those on the receiving end of it. I'm not sure that matters too much. The point is that they were behaving in such a way that these people, they needed a new name. Because most of the time, Christians were just viewed as Jews. Uh, it was a sect of Judaism. Gentiles certainly viewed them that way, but even some Jews viewed them that way. That This is some off-brand of, of, of Judaism. But in Antioch, they were so different that they needed a new name. They were called Christians. Let's read uh, this passage here. Acts 11, beginning in verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some men, or some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at, Antioch, or at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders." We're going to be drawing our points uh, particularly from this portion of Scripture. And there's two main things that I want us to see as we start asking this question, what does it mean uh, to be a Christian? What is a, a Christian? Particularly looking at this church in Antioch. And the first one that I want to bring up as, as we ask this question of what is a Christian, I believe what we see is that a Christian is dedicated. 
That clears it up, right? Now we know what a Christian is, right? Well, no, that, that's pretty vague too, right? What, what does it mean to be dedicated? Well, I want to look at verses 19 and 20. And when we look there, one thing that we'll see is that a Christian is dedicated to the faith. So Luke, uh, the author of this book, reminds the reader of something that he had mentioned back in Acts chapter 8. He reminds the reader in verse 19 of this scattering of the Christians here. That Christians were being sent out, not like on some sort of mission, but because of this persecution, they were scattering, going uh, all sorts of different places. Huge groups of Christians were driven uh, around uh, the area there. There's a map. You can kind of see some of the places uh, that are mentioned here. They become these refugees running for safety running for their lives because of this persecution. Some, uh, they went to some nearby cities, some not so nearby cities. Verse 19 says they came to the region of Phoenicia, came to the island of Cyprus, and they came to Antioch. And then you see in verse 20, it tells us that some people were coming as far as Cyrene. Cyrene being a northern part of Africa, pretty far west of Egypt. That's pretty far away from Antioch. That's pretty far away from Jerusalem. But you got people going all over because of this scattering because of this. So Antioch kind of becomes this melting pot of sorts because you've got people from Cyrene, you've got people from Cyprus all kind of meeting in this one spot. But I say they're dedicated to the faith because despite running for their lives, they continue the very thing that sent them running in the first place. When they come to this city, they bring their faith with them. It seems uh, similar to me back in Acts chapter 5. In Acts 5, you get uh, uh, the apostles who are imprisoned, right? Uh, they're thrown in jail. Uh, they're thrown in jail because they are teaching in the name of Jesus. They are healing in the name of Jesus. Then they're miraculously released. And then where do you find them next? In the exact same place where they are arrested in the first place. Doing the exact same thing that they were arrested for. What we see from these Christians in Antioch is they weren't looking for a second chance at a good life. All right, we did that Christianity thing. We did that. Now we're in a new place. This is going to go better. We're not going to uh, repeat the same things we did before. No, they actually do. They do the exact same thing that they had done before. And even though Antioch is mostly a city of Gentiles, there's certainly a good-sized Jewish population there. Uh, and so there's a chance of persecution even in Antioch, if not from the Jews, from the Gentiles. But they decide to bring their faith with them because they are dedicated to the faith. Is that us? Are we dedicated to the faith? Do we bring our faith everywhere we go. We often have this, have this temptation to have like a pie chart of sorts where one pie goes to my job, one pie goes to the church, one pie goes to my family, right? Piece of the pie. Anyways, you, you see what I'm saying, right? No, no, no. We, we can't compartmentalize our life as a Christian. The entire pie is the faith. The entire pie is being dedicated to God. And that's what you see from these Christians. Do we leave our faith at the church building on Sundays and Wednesdays, do we leave our faith at home when we leave for work, when we leave for school? So I, I, like, I like country music a good bit. Um, not the radio stuff, but you know, other good country music. I do like it. However, I will say one thing I really don't like about country music, and I mean this seriously, is the way in which they talk about Christianity. Uh, because in large part, actually, Christi Christianity is spoken of quite nicely in, 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 in country music. So you might be wondering what I'm thinking. Um, it makes it seem as though Christianity is just kind of a part of our heritage. That it's just kind of a southern tradition. Uh, this is what we've been raised in. This is just kind of what we do. This is a part of our lives. 
Folks, that cannot be the way we view the reason why we are here this morning. We are not here just because this is what we've been brought up to do. We are not here because it's a part of our southern heritage. It's on like some flag that we got or two, right? Like we're we're not here because it's just what we do. We are here because we are dedicated to the faith, the saving grace of Jesus. That's why we're here. We learn from the church in Antioch. That a Christian is dedicated to the faith. We also learn, uh, particularly in verses 19 and 20, is that a Christian is dedicated to outreach. A Christian is dedicated to outreach. Notice that they didn't just bring their faith with them uh, just to kind of keep to themselves, right? No, no. When you have a light in a dark place, do you hide it under a bushel, children? No, you let it shine, right? That's what you do with light. And so that's exactly what they do. They go out and they, they are reaching out to other people. By the way, by the way, that's one reason why there was persecution in Jerusalem, right? Certainly some of the Jews would have been upset that you have this group of people who were following this false Messiah as they saw it, and they didn't like that. But I would imagine that things would have gone a whole lot differently If there was just a small group of people following this guy behind closed doors for nobody else to see. No, the persecution came because these Christians would not stop talking about Jesus. Even after persecution, they would not stop talking about Jesus. Even when the persecution got so extreme that they're being scattered to all these different places, they will not stop talking about Jesus. They kept spreading the word. Now, it says in verse 9 that they were, they were speaking the word to Jews only, which might seem like uh, this terrible, terrible thing, but you, you realize uh, all the way through chapter 9, that's been the whole thing. It's only been to Jews. But then it says in verse 20 that they were preaching the Lord Jesus to Gentiles as well. And it's interesting that when they start preaching the word uh, to Gentiles as well, is that the gospel spreads with the same amount of fervor. It wasn't just crumbs to the dogs or anything like that. You look at verse 22, large numbers believed and turned to the Lord. Now, one thing we don't know, we don't really know the timeline of all of this. One question I would have is like, are they doing this because they heard about what happened in Caesarea? Because they heard about what happened with Cornelius and his household and how they were converted. And then they're like, all right, let's go do this. Or are they just kind of doing this, inspired by the Spirit, or led by the Spirit, preaching to Gentiles as well? We don't know. But regardless, they preached the Word wherever they went, to both Jew and Gentile. And look with me in chapter 13. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Luke gives an interesting detail as to what this outreach looked like. If you look in uh, Acts 13 and verse 1, you get a list of of people who are in Antioch, a list of prophets and teachers. And second to last in that list is a man by the name of Manaen. Look at what it says about him. Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. New American Standard says brought up with. ESV says lifelong friends with. The ASV says foster brother. Who is he foster brothers with? But Herod. Now, it's not the same Herod from the, from the previous chapter, but it is the same Herod that you read about before. The same Herod who killed John the Baptist. The same Herod who, who, who mistreated Jesus before he went on the cross. This is a man who is like best friend, maybe even brothers with Herod. Their outreach was so far that they were able to preach the gospel to a man 
who is friends with Herod. And not only that, but by the time of this first journey, which is what Acts chapter 13 starts to trans off, uh, transition into, this man is a prophet and teacher in Antioch. What tremendous growth that is and what tremendous outreach that is. How are we doing with that type of outreach? Are we doing our best to spread the gospel to people? Are we talking to visitors who are here? Maybe you are a visitor and you're here looking for a church, or maybe you're just kind of uh, popping in or something like that. Whatever the reason is, members here, are we trying to reach out to them? By the way, I can hardly even call that outreach. It's really just more being aware that people are here. They are coming to us. Are we trying to teach them? But beyond that, are we deliberately trying to have spiritual conversations with people? And I mean that. How deliberate are we in having spiritual conversations with our neighbors, uh, with, with coworkers, with classmates, with friends, whoever that is? Are we attempting to have spiritual conversations or do, or, or do we ignore uh, the problems that we see other people going through? simply so we don't have to talk about it? Or uh, do we love these surface-level conversations because we really don't want to get into the weeds of other people's lives? Or maybe better yet, we don't want them to get into the weeds of our lives? Guys, this is me. Uh, I, I say this to my shame. I struggle. I struggle with this a lot. Um, those easy surface-level conversations are, are tempting. They are easy to, to, to go through, and I've been doing this for, for years and years, and I need to be better about this. Um, but the Christians in Antioch should serve as a reminder to us that what is a Christian? Well, it is one who is dedicated to speaking the Word to other people. They generated meaningful conversations with each other, but also with others. And may this be said about us here at Oak Mountain. Another thing we see uh, from these people in, in Antioch is that a Christian, a Christian is dedicated to one another, specifically in, in, in two areas. We, we see their dedication in their cooperation, that they were willing to cooperate with one another. Antioch already has a proven history of kind of accepting Gentiles in some way. If you go back to Acts chapter 6, when those, uh, those seven men are listed, there's a man by the name of Nicholas who is a proselyte. That means a Gentile convert to Judaism, and then obviously, eventually, uh, to Christianity, but a proselyte from Antioch. So there, we've already seen this. Verses 19 and 20 have shown us that they're pretty welcoming to these out-of-towners, right? People invading their city, and yet they're able to settle there. But, of course, foremost of all, we see their willingness to spread the gospel to Gentiles. But I'm going to take that a little further. They didn't just spread the gospel to Gentiles, but they cooperated with them. They worked with them. Jews worked with Gentiles. Gentiles worked with Jews. Notice... Notice there aren't separate worship places for Jews and Gentiles. There's no separate but equal synagogues in Antioch. You don't see anything like that. There's no separate meeting times for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. There's not a special room in the back for all the Gentiles to go worship. No, you don't see anything like that. Acts 11 and verse 26 says that Saul met with the church there, not the churches. All of those people who were in Antioch, both Jew and Gentile, worshipped together. They worked with one another. And you know what? The Bible talks a lot about the cultural differences between Jews and Gentiles. It talks a lot about how difficult 
that was. You want to read through 1 Corinthians or Romans, you'll get a, a good taste as to how difficult that was at times. Galatians shows us that the division was extreme and it had been going on for years and years. And yet the church in Antioch at this point is dedicated to that type of cooperation. But then building from that, if you get down to verse 20, uh, back in Acts 11, if you get down to verse 22, 23, 24, you can see they got a good thing going. Good stuff is going on in Antioch. But then Barnabas shows up. This hot shot from Jerusalem is going to come in, swoop in and tell them how it's really done, right? Oh, look who knows so much. This, this Levite come in and you're going to show us how to really be Christians, right? Is that their attitude? Is that the attitude of the Christians in Antioch? No. No, they receive Barnabas. They are encouraged by them. And you know why they didn't have that type of attitude? Two reasons. First, Barnabas didn't have that type of attitude. Barnabas didn't come in to establish his own church and have all these people look up to him or teach them some new gospel or anything like that. No, he didn't do anything like that. Verse 24 describes Barnabas as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, into faith. Barnabas is excited to contribute in whatever way that he can in what is going on in Antioch, to work with them. And you know what? They are willing to listen. And we also see the Christians in Antioch being willing to cooperate in the way that they treated Saul. If you're reading through Acts, um, you get to Acts chapter 11. And you see in verse 25 that, they, uh, that Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. That might seem like an insignificant detail. Remember, though, Luke reminds us in verse 19 as to the makeup of the church in Antioch. The church was begun by refugees, these people who were escaping severe persecution in Jerusalem. And you know who spearheaded that persecution? Saul of Tarsus. The whole reason they exist as a church is because of the persecution of this man. And Barnabas say, hey guys, I'll be back in a little bit. I'm going to go get the guy who forced you to be here in the first place. And what's their reaction when Saul comes in? I would imagine there is some hesitancy, but it's all in my imagination because it doesn't indicate that. They receive him. They take him in. For a whole year they worshipped with Saul and Barnabas, sat at his feet, tried to learn from him. Regardless of cultural differences, regardless of what he had done to some of their brethren, maybe even relatives and friends, regardless of that, they worship with him. They work together with them. And again, why were they willing to do this? First reason I said is because Barnabas didn't have that attitude. Saul didn't have that attitude. But the second reason is really for the first two points that I mentioned before. They're dedicated to the faith. They're dedicated to the Lord. They're not concerned about these worldly things anymore. Uh, verses 19 and 20 says that they were speaking the word, the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. At the end of that verse, they turned to the Lord. Verse 23, they witnessed the grace of God. Uh, Barnabas is saying, remain true to the Lord. Verse 24, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. What's their focus in all of this? Their focus is on the Lord. That's why they're not getting wrapped up in some guy from Jerusalem coming up. That's why they're not getting wrapped up about whether Jews and Gentiles can worship with one another. That's why they're not getting wrapped up over what Saul might be, uh, 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 might be bringing to them in persecution. They're not wrapped up in that because they are wrapped up in the Lord. That's what their focus is. 
So when we are dedicated to cooperation, it comes out of our dedication to the Lord and our dedication to the faith. But we also see their dedication to one another in their, in their generosity. Uh, that's the verses we get in 27 through 30, right? We read about this. This prophet from Jerusalem comes up, Agabus, and he starts speaking to them about this great famine that was going to come about. And we see this group of largely Gentile converts pulling all their money together for a group of Jews. That's striking to me. And it should be striking to us. But look at verse 29. I want to point this out. Verse 29 says that they did this in the proportion that any of the disciples had means. Each of them determined to send a contribution. You notice it was to the proportion that they had determined. Whatever they had means to do, they did it. So this generosity was something that was just kind of bubbling over from the heart. Whatever they could do, they decided to do. And you know what? This is consistent with what we've seen to the book or to this point in the book of Acts. You know what? We don't get any specific teachings about how a Christian, if, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to sell your land and you've got to lay it at the apostles' feet. Now, we, we certainly see them doing that, but we don't get any specific teaching on that. Nor do they say you have to sell this amount and give this amount. Nor do they say you have to share with one another and things like that. Really, what it seems like, the way you read it throughout the book of Acts is, this is just what Christians do. Was there teaching on this? Well, you can go all the way back to even before Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist stands up, Luke chapter 3 and verse 11. The one who has two tunics, give to the one who has none. That was a part of the message. Jesus echoes that same thought. Matthew chapter 25 in this parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. It has always been a part of the gospel message to take care of one another through our generosity. And we can keep going in the book of Acts. Acts 16 has two specific examples that are very striking to me. Lydia is converted to the gospel. She responds to it. And I love the way Luke phrases this. He invi or she invites them to, her, uh, to his house or to her house, excuse me. And it says that her hospitality prevailed upon us. I love that phrase. Her hospitality prevailed upon us. It, it seems to indicate that there was a little bit of, nah, it's, it's okay, thank you. But she's like, no, no, y'all are coming over to my house. And then you look later on in, the book, uh, in, in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer is converted. What's the first thing that he, do, he does after he obeys the gospel? He immediately brings them into his home and feeds them. It would seem wrapped up in the gospel message is hospitality, is generosity, is giving to others who have need, constantly opening up your home to other Christians, to other people, inviting them, uh, serving them in this way. How are we doing with that? Back in Acts 11 and verse 23, Barnabas arrives, and the way Luke phrases it, he says that he witnessed the grace of God. What does that mean? He goes to Antioch and he witnessed the grace of God. Certainly, I think a part of it is that he witnessed the salvation of the Gentiles, right? And that, that's reason to rejoice. I, I think that's certainly a part of it. But I also believe the grace that he is witnessing is just the way that they are cooperating 
and the generosity that they are showing with one another. We looked last week when we, oh, in that discussion that we had on, on the men that we support. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 14. Remember, Paul calls that financial fellowship, that generosity, that support, he calls it the surpassing grace of God. So it would seem to me that we are falling short of the gospel message if we do not speak to others and tell them and show them the generosity. Because what it seems is we receive the grace from God, this uh, unmerited favor, right? And then we immediately show grace to others. That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian does. We show that grace to others through cooperation, generosity, and hospitality. So I said before that we have two things as far as to describe what a Christian is. The second one really isn't much different uh, than the first. A Christian is dedicated, and we looked at the reasons why they're dedicated or, or to what they're dedicated. But also a Christian is just different. And that's kind of wrapped up in all the things that we just talked about, right? A Christian is different specifically from the world. But they're not different in the sense of, like, they're weird or something, like in some obscene way, in some very noticeable way, in this particular way. Like, it's not that you know they're a Christian because they have blue hair. Or you know that they're a Christian because they all dress in denim. Or you know that they're a Christian because they all have this one hand gesture that they do. Or they all have this one uh, thing that they say to one another. It's not war, uh, war tithe. Uh, war eagle or roll tithe. Neither of those things, right? No, a Christian doesn't have that. It's not that they all meet in this particular building, nor is it that they all go to this particular college. That's not what Christianity is wrapped up in. It's a condition of the heart. Now, I hope we will think about what we wear. I hope we will consider that. I hope we will think about what image are we projecting to other people in whatever hairstyle we have or whatever clothes we decide to wear. I hope we will think about the gestures that we make to other people. I, th I hope we will think about the, the, the building we worship in. I hope we will think about where we go to school, if we choose to go to school at all. I hope that we will consider those things. But I hope that consideration comes as an outpouring of our dedication to the faith, to outreach, and to one another. Because that's the motivation. That's what makes us so different, is the degree to which we are dedicated to these things. A Christian is different. But ultimately, we are different because we are reborn different. In a world that is so concerned about how we were born this way, I can't help it. It's just, it's just the way I was born. Um, my life is, has been put on this path, and there's nothing I can do about it because that's the way I was born. That's usually said uh, as an excuse to behave in a certain way, typically in a way that benefits themselves. Um, but honestly, born this way, not born this way, I don't really care. What it's more about is what were you reborn? How were you reborn? You were reborn differently. You were born again. However you were born in the first place is irrelevant because that person has died. And you have been reborn a Christian. And in that rebirth, what we behave differently than we did before. And we behave different than the world. 
I want to end by looking at Ephesians chapter 4. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4. We discussed this a few uh, weeks ago and how um, part of the message of Ephesians is, is this death to life transition. You see that a lot. See that especially at the end of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. But Paul comes back to this thought in Ephesians 4, uh, beginning of verse 17. Read with me uh, Ephesians 4, beginning of verse 17. So I say, so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I love that phrase in verse 20. You did not learn Christ in this way. How did we learn Christ? I often think that this, this verse comes to my mind when I can easily point to something that I have done that I should not have done, or I failed to do something that I should have done. I didn't learn Christ in that way. That's not the example that Christ gave me. Again, if a Christian is a follower of Christ, imitator of Christ, what we need to go to is, what did Christ do? So if we think you didn't learn Christ in this way, that's not what Jesus did. That's not imitating Christ. That's not being a Christian. What we need to be consumed with is, are we dedicated to the faith? Because that's what a Christian is. Are we dedicated to outreach? Are we dedicated to one another in cooperation and generosity? And are we determined to be different from the world through that dedication? So what is a Christian? Well, it is one who has been reborn. It is one who has been born again through the waters of baptism and have become this new person. But it's one who has learned Christ and now attempts to imitate Him in that dedication of faith, outreach, and to one another. Are you a Christian? Again, we haven't spent a whole lot of time on how you become a, a Christian. That's an important study. If you're interested in that, maybe you need to sit down and study a little further. I, further, I would, I would love to do that with you. Other people here would love to do that with you. But maybe you already know what it, what it means to become a Christian. I hope this lesson has inspired you to take that next step, to become that Christian, and to be dedicated to the faith, to outreach, into one another. If you want to make that commitment now, come up now while we stand and while we sing.